1: Welcome to this uh, Bible study on the book of Revelation. We are now beginning chapter 15, and chapter 15 introduces us to the last segment of the wrath of God, in which are uh, signified by those bowls of wrath we are going to see. In fact, chapter 15 is part of a series of four chapters, from 15 all the way through 18 during which the wrath of God is going to come to an end. So before we take on those chapters, let's one more time recall to mind what we have seen so far from the beginning of the book up to this point. If you, if you have been with us since the beginning of the book of Revelation, you will recall that the overarching, overarching structure of this book has been or can be expressed in three parts. First, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes down and then walks among his churches, the seven churches, and as he examines each of the churches, he issues um, warnings and words of comfort and as well as advice on how the churches or the church in general, since 7 means the universal church, how the church ought to conduct herself in a face of seemingly insurmountable persecutions and difficulties. And he went through each of the churches examining the particular conditions, the particular situations, thereby indicating that he's extremely aware, he's very aware of the situation of each particular church, And in the context of that uh, situation, he would tell them what they have to do. Now, this is something the Lord does within his church. The Lord is constantly talking to us in our church, in the Catholic church, in a very intelligible way. And if today you're wondering how the Lord is talking to us, all that you have to do is to read and study the encyclicals of the popes. Because the encyclicals of the popes and other uh, church documents are the primary way, the royal way, if you will, through which God speaks to us and tells us how we ought to conduct ourselves into this world. That is why the church is structured the way she is. That's why there is a pope, and that's why there are bishops, and that's why we have a hierarchy, so that by means of this hierarchy, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is speaking to each and every one of us in the particulars of our situations. You know, there are some people who are... In a sense, uh, more amazed, or 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 surprised, or interested, or fascinated by what we call interlocutions or personal um, dialogues that people, particular people throughout the history of the Church, have had with our Lord. And in one sense, we completely understand it because here, seemingly there is, or uh, actually there is, a sort of a touchdown between the divine and the human. God the Almighty comes down as he came down in a burning bush and he touches a human heart and speaks to the human heart in, um, in a very intimate way. And what he says to the human heart may be applicable only to that human heart or it could be that it is a message that he wants it to be relayed to uh, many out there. For instance, a very famous example, of course, is when our Lord Jesus Christ told St. Francis, Francis, rebuild my church. Or when he spoke to St. Catherine of Siena or again to St. Teresa of Avila and other great saints, great men and women of the church. Now, this is wonderful for us. This is a great gift of comfort. This is something we cherish and we hold as a very precious gift, precious gift from the Lord to us. However, I would say to you that these gifts are in a sense less important all of them put together are less important than the encyclicals of the popes. Now, I think, mean, why? Why? Because through the encyclicals of the popes, through the teachings of our church, the Lord is speaking in a magisterial way. And it is a, a way of speech which is according, which is conformed most to his heart. This is how he wanted us to listen to him. That is the best way we could listen to him is by studying the catechism, by listening to what the popes are saying and by conforming our lives to the teachings of the church. When we do so, we are like that Roman uh, legioner who told the Lord, you don't need to come to my house. I have people under me. I tell them go, they go. I tell them come, they come. They do what I say. So I know. Therefore, that you, who is in command, was in charge of everything, all you have to do is to say this or say that, and I will do it. The Roman legioner, the Roman soldier, understood the structure of the church by his own experience, through his own experience. He need, He didn't have any interlocution. He didn't have any extraordinary visitation. All he had was the use of his reason, illuminated by the grace of God, and that, that allowed him to believe. And the Lord said, In all of Israel I have not seen faith such as this one. He praised him on his faith. So think about it. What do you want the Lord to say to you when he will see you for your personal judgment? Do you want him to say to you, In all of the universe I have not seen faith as such as yours, or do you want him to say something less? In, in, a, in a real sense, when we follow... The church and read her documents and learn more about her and love her, we are conducting ourselves as the best, in the best possible way, according to God's will. Again, I am not disparaging or putting down those wonderful messages of consolation and hope and wisdom that he gives us through the saints. He gives them He gives them to us because he knows, in a sense, to our weaknesses and our um, and original sin and everything else that... We need them, so he gives them to us, but they are a sort of additional steps he takes over and above the normal process of that he established, which is the normal the normal process he established in the church to talk to us right so once more, we see him doing that as he walks to the churches, and he talks to St John as an apostle as a bishop, and he is telling him. To tell those churches about the way they need to conduct themselves. According to the covenant. If you recall, each of the messages was structured according to the covenant. A covenantal message or covenantal lawsuit. I'll refer you back to these um, early talks we had on the book of Revelation. Following that first step, where the Lord speaks to his church, the Lord then will speak to the world at large. But there, the mode of communication is different. He's not using intelligible words. He's not speaking to the world the way he speaks to his church. He speaks to the world through the language of the Old Covenant, through nature. That doesn't mean that we Catholics ignore nature. We don't, absolutely not. But we have something more. And when you leave the Catholic Church, you have something less. It isn't that God doesn't talk to you anymore, but the means of communication are not as perfect as when you are a member of the Catholic Church. He uses nature, which is a prefiguration of the Church. It prefigures the Church as the old creation, and the Catholic Church as a new creation. Right? Now, of course, the nature itself will be one day renewed and made whole and made Catholic once the end of the world has been reached and things are made all new. But in the meantime, nature being what it is today, God speaks to the world through nature. And for us Catholics, we see a fundamental shift in scenery because St. John is invited to go up. The door is open in heaven. The prophets of old have seen that royal... Um, hall, they've seen God enthroned and I'll refer you to our talks on Ezekiel on Isaiah and on Daniel but they've not been able to go up St. John goes up now this up, this heaven is not the beatific vision, it is uh, it is a um, um, how shall I say that it is a sort of uh, in between earth and heaven it is a space where heaven meets earth it is really a mystical space or a liturgical space it is a space where the liturgy is ongoing effectively God is saying to St. John why don't you come up and celebrate the liturgy with us and then I will reveal to you the power of the liturgy I will show you how through the liturgy I run the world effectively the liturgy makes history uh, have There has not been a real study other than uh, perhaps the study that was made by Bossuet to correlate the liturgy to history. but if one were to do that my th- my thinking would be that one would see a fairly interesting correlation and and uh, I, I, I mean by that, that if we are to correlate the way we live the liturgy, the fervor of Catholic faith, the fidelity of uh, Catholicism to the teachings of the Church, the presence of saints, the renewals of the renewal of the Church, and the the um, worldwide events that happen uh, within that period or shortly thereafter. I believe we will start to see an interesting correlation. That's my thinking. I have not done that study yet, and uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to get to it and to see if we can indeed establish this type of correlation, Uh, I would admit to you that this is not easy, but I think we might be able to derive some interesting patterns of behavior in the world that might be uh, correlated to what happens within the church. When St. John goes up, now we see the throne of God, we see the 24 elders, which effectively are symbolic for All the bishops and all the the, the priests, all those who are actually celebrating the liturgy, turn to the Lord in their celebration and adoration. Therefore, we see the church Catholic, the church one, celebrating the liturgy with the heavenly liturgy. And as we, people of God, being in a state of grace, praise God, give Him glory and honor, He responds by taking action. And in that Catholic dialogue, history is forged. We see then the Lord Jesus Christ opening up those seals, and these seals are sending warnings, natural warnings, into the world. You know, these days we've completely lost our ability to read in the natural events of the world the words of God. We have effectively desacralized the whole universe. We've taken God out of, we've taken... The angels out of the universe, and we made it be nothing more than a conglomeration of molecules. Now, don't get me wrong, I have absolutely nothing against science. I love science, I think science is great and wonderful. But science is telling me how things happen. Science cannot tell me why something happened in a fundamental existential way. Science might say, you know, you plant an acorn, you'll get an oak. Great. And this is how it happens. It doesn't tell me why, in the first place, this can happen. And therefore, there is is no real contradiction between true science and true religion. There is actual complementarity. So in the natural events of our world, God is talking to us according to his covenant. That is a fundamental reality we need to come back to and understand and act upon the ancients were wiser than we are than we are today because they heeded god's word through nature they knew that beyond nature there was something there was someone who is telling us shape up or else or telling us well done instead we decide today that to take to put all the responsibility of the whole of the whole planet earth The entire responsibility of how planet Earth feels on our shoulders. That is tantamount of essentially putting despair on our shoulders. We're too small to fix Earth. At the end of the day, that's a simple basic physical reality. It's like asking a bunch of ants to fix your house. we, We can't. But with the grace of God, with the grace of God, we can do that which by ourselves we cannot. And that's why we need the cooperation of the angels. We need to have a life that is ordered according to to the natural, to the natural law, according to right reason, and according to the teachings of the church. So as Catholics, we just cannot disengage ourselves from the world and say, well, you know... The world is going to get destroyed anyhow, so why should we bother? Let's just, you know, sit in our homes and then pray and then create a ghetto where all Catholics just can meet. Can't do that. And the book, if anything, the Book of Revelation is showing us how we must be engaged in the world, and we must be here for the world. So then we see now, the the, Saint John in heaven, the seals are being opened, and that's in chapter four and following. And right after those seals are opened we move from warnings to a partial punishment, a punishment whose intent is to allow some to convert. And what brings that about is in the fifth seal, the blood of the martyrs, those who bore witness to Jesus Christ. They call on to the Lord to take action, to do Something about the fact that they were killed and about those who are suffering. So the saints in heaven are interceding with us, but not in a way not in the way we always think they are. And then they're told, those saints are told to rest a little while until the number, the number of the martyrs is complete for that particular age. That's another really important lesson we've learned. The book of Revelation is not just about the end of times when the world will come to an end, it is about the way God works, I mean, God regulates the world, God intervenes in the world throughout the ages. Those ages that make up the new age, the Catholic age, the one that was inaugurated by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so throughout every age, there are saints who are doing the same thing as those saints did when St. John was writing this book. They are interceding before the throne of God today. All the martyrs of the 20th century are doing the same thing. They're interceding and the book of Revelation shows us how God is going to act today as he acted back then, as he acted through every age of the church. Through every age of the church and that's the consoling part. This is the revealing part of the book of Revelation which you will not find explicitly stated in any other part of the New Testament or the Old Testament. None of the other books show you how the liturgy is the vehicle through which God intervenes, God acts, God consoles, God loves, and God corrects, and God punishes. It is through the liturgy. So we do our part by what? First, living a life of grace. Availing ourselves of the sacrament of confession, often, regularly. Praying for those who can't, for those who may be bound by chains of doubt and anxiety, who may be... Deep, deeply imprisoned in some emotional chains that are preventing them from even going to the sacrament of confession. We need to pray for these people. We ask God to help them and give them the grace they need to avail themselves of the sacrament of mercy. Confession is mercy. It's nothing more than God's mercy. It's not God's judgment. It's God's mercy. God loves us and he's calling us to himself so that he can help us be who he calls us to be. And then, of course, the Eucharist, the Mass. And I'm hoping that through this study of the Book of Revelation, your outlook on the liturgy has changed. That you do not see the liturgy anymore as well. One thing I need to go—I go there. I just go through these steps: stand, sit, kneel, you know, fold hand, open hand, do all these things, and I'm, I'm done. I'm go home, and then do my own. You, you, Mass is Mass is this scene that Saint John is describing to you in the Book of Revelation. That's what mass is. And you have to train yourself to see it with the eyes of faith. Now, the key word here is training. you got to train yourself. It doesn't happen on its own because God is not going to impinge upon your free will. God is not going to force you to see what He wants you to see. He doesn't work that way. It's up to each and every one of us, to train ourselves to see Mass for what it is. So what do you mean by train ourselves? Well, first, we show God that we want to be serious. So therefore, we take some time in the morning to prepare ourselves for where we're going. I mean, imagine that you're going for the um, graduation of your son or daughter. Imagine you're going to meet the president. Imagine you're going to meet the Pope. What do you do? Do you just... Get up and put your clothes on any clothes and take off and nothing about it you've been thinking about it for weeks you've been preparing for it what you're going to say what you want to say what you want to show the pope what are the things important to you what you want to ask him you've been thinking about that you've been preparing for it and this is the pope what what if you were to see the lord jesus christ sitting in that chair instead of the pope the lord himself what would you do would you just go the way you are Knowing that he can see read your soul, or would you go to the go to confession, do everything you can to make yourself presentable before him? I mean, I would. I think everybody would. But that's what you're doing in mass. It's the same thing. You're preparing yourself to see the Lord. Not only are you receive him, to receive him. I mean, imagine that. So you mentally prepare yourself for this, and when you enter this church, and I know these days most the architecture of most churches is wanting in uh, in a, in a drastic way, it's really a tragedy that most of our churches are not aligned with what we see in the book of Revelation. So it's really hard for us to fathom the majesty and beauty of heaven when we enter those churches. But when we enter this church, we need to open the eyes of faith and then understand that we are physically, really, substantially present before the throne of God in his hall, in his royal hall. The king is seated and the king is going to hear our petitions, and the king is going to respond to our petitions according to our deeds, according to our works, according to our state, the state we are in. This is what the book of Revelation is telling us. And, he, and the book of Revelation is showing us how God responds. So, as I said earlier, during the seals, we saw the saints who are intervening, who are uh, interceding, I mean, and God responds. And then we move into we've moved into the whole lengthy series of the trumpets. And into the series we saw that the apex of the book of Revelation is that chapter eleven and twelve, where the Ark of the Covenant is revealed. It's the center of the book, the focal point. And how this Ark of the Covenant in the form of of this woman, our lady, and therefore the church is now brought down to earth. That movement is significant. It's essentially saying that what we've seen in heaven, this royal majesty and glory is now being brought down to earth. And when it comes down to earth, and that's really key, it is going to be commingled with the reality of earth, the earthly fallen reality. So therefore, we should be very realistic. We should not assume that you know the glory of God comes down like this brilliant saucer and then and then lands softly, and all comes, and and everybody's happy. Not going to happen this way. It is very similar to what happened when the Lord Himself became man. And it is this now the liturgy is entering history, and it is messy because there is opposition, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we saw that in the trumpets how the trumpets bring about partial punishment into the world, and. thereby allowing some to repent, but at the same time preparing the rest for the wrath of God, the punishment that is to come in with the bowls. That's what's really important for us to understand. This is essentially the structure of the book. This is how the book becomes intelligible at a higher level. Now, I'm not saying this is exclusively the structure of the book. I'm sure there's a lot more in it than I've told you. But at least it is one way where we can say, well, this this is what happens in the book of Revelation. It is effectively modeled according to the liturgy. We have the liturgy of the word where God speaks to us. Then we move into the liturgy of the Eucharist. And at the same time, we're seeing now, we are God is revealing to us how the liturgy is interfering, intervening in history and how the liturgy changes history by the actions of God. So our prayers, our intercession... Our petitions. Petitions are very important in the church, and they should be accorded a great, great importance. Our petitions are brought before the throne of God. They need to be very concrete, very specific. They need to re- reflect our needs, and they need to be asked with a great fervor and a pure heart. And when this happens, God responds to those petitions, and He make it happen. He'll bring it about. Because the world, after all, is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is what happens at the end of the sixth trumpet, when that mighty angel comes down and says, there shall be no more delay. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And that's another important aspect we see in the book of Revelation, which we're going to see today in chapter 15, and that is, the saints in heaven praise God and thank Him for an action that has not yet taken place. Let me repeat that. The saints in heaven praise God and thank Him for an action that has not yet taken place. And we'll see that today. I want you to key on on this because it has numerous implications on the way we Catholics ought to live our faith. It is also very similar to the way Jesus prayed before he He raised Lazarus from the dead. He first thanked His Father for effectively raising Lazarus before He actually did it. Indicating thereby once more that the action takes place first in within the context of the liturgy, and then it is it becomes manifest in the world. And that's the, the, in a sense what miracles are all about, which is where we align our will with the will of God, and we and once this alignment has happened, we thank Him for what we know has already taken place because God decided it. And then we see it taking place. Right? And we're going to see it today in chapter 15. So why don't we begin now by reading this chapter, which is introduction to the last segment, the bowls of wrath. Then I saw another portrait in heaven, great and wonderful, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of the ages. Who shall not fear and glorify thy name, O Lord? For thou alone art holy. All nations shall come and worship thee, for thy judgments have been revealed. After this I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, robed in pure bright linen, and their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. So in this chapter, what we see then is the beginning of those bowls. First of all, notice that in verse 1, St. John says, I saw another portent in heaven, great and wonderful. So the first portent in heaven that he saw, I mean, the other portent of heaven we saw most recently is specifically the woman clothed the sun. And that was a great and port- wonderful portent as well. And this is therefore a continuation of it. Because we are now brought back to the liturgy. And what is this great and wonderful portent? Seven angels with seven plagues. Let me repeat that. The fact that the seven angels are carrying seven plagues <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is <coughs> seen by St. John as a great and wonderful portent. portent. Uh, this is not what we would characterize as a great and wonderful portent. Uh, plagues are not usually categorized by us as wonderful. They're usually categorized as uh, nasty. We don't like plagues. But seen from heaven, they are considered to be wonderful. And why is that? Because... Specifically because they are uh, part of God's response to our prayers and the establishment of his kingdom they will bring to end that which is now opposing the expansion of the church. put it differently think about it for a second let, 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 okay let's let's think about it in historical in, in, within a historical context at the time of St John. what we know from that time is that on the one hand there was a persecution that was led by the leaders of the temples of Jerusalem. We, we've read it in the Acts. We know it from it by St. Paul's writing. It's a historical reality. That's what happened during the first century. On the, other, on, the, on the other side, we have the Roman Empire that is demanding from people to worship the emperor. And thirdly, there are those who within the church are now provoking and causing heresies. They want to compromise. They want to lead an easy life. And then throughout the ages, you will always have (coughs) uh, leaders of different temples who are plotting against the church. You will always have people within the church who are causing heresies. And you will always have political powers who are set against the church. So that reality of the first century, in many ways, is also reality of our century. And that's that's a source of comfort and hope for us, because we see how God is going to act throughout history. Now, had God not intervened, had God if God did not remove these obstacles, then many of the Gentiles would not have been able to attain unto salvation, to enter the church. That is why those plagues are seen as wonderful, because through them, God is removing obstacles for the proclamation of the gospel I mean that's the reality that we are facing. this is what we deal with it's it's a broken world out there, and God, through his wisdom, love, and justice, brings about the reality of the kingdom. So keep that in mind the wrath of God is really throughout the ages is also is not only meant for punishment or for sending people to hell it is also meant as a a way to open up the opportunity of evangelization for his church so that the the church would throughout all ages talk to all nations and reach all hearts that's why it is seen as great and wonderful and by the way it's not seen as great and wonderful because these plagues are last Uh, I the, the, these things are separate, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And by this, St. John is indicating that after this, these seven bowls, the wrath of God comes to an end, that the fruit of this wrath will then be manifest. And we will get to it in chapter 19. Now, the seven plagues number seven as usual now you should know that is 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 all encompassing it is the number of the Covenant so this is a covenantal judgment we've seen that uh, repeatedly and uh, it is uh, complete the plagues of course are reflected in the place are a reflection of the plagues of Egypt Uh, these are the covenantal curses Which are going to reach the end, which are going to therefore allow God to reach the stated end and the establishment of His church, and um, it is therefore for the building up of the church. Now, the sea mingled with glass. This sea refers um, to the great laver that was placed in the temple of Solomon in the court of the priest, but also through that laver it refers to the Red Sea. Why? Because when the Jews went to the Red Sea, they were, in one sense, washed away. The, the, some of the uh, ancient Jewish commentaries would see that the, would say that Israel was born anew. And, of course, we see in that passage, through the, uh, through the uh, analogical sense of the scripture, a, uh, an indication of baptism, so that we, as we enter the waters of baptism, die with Christ and then are raised with him, when to reach the other side it's also seen as the womb of our lady as may as a representation of mary this is uh, how the i believe saint augustine said it because through uh, the red sea the people of god were saved and uh, th- those attacking them pharaoh who symbolized who represented then the devil were uh, was crushed so now the this the sea of glass is before the um Altar, it is therefore part of the sanctuary. It's before the throne of God is part of the sanctuary. It's the sea of glass sort of it is the same seas we've seen earlier on in chapter four, where St. John speaks of the sea of crystal. Yet this time it's mingled with, with fire. Glass mingled with fire. What does that mean? Again, let's not be too materialistic here and trying to understand the chemical reaction between glass mingled with fire and how it can be solid. That's not the point. The point is that fire, throughout the book of Revelation, means judgment. Always means judgment. The sea is the sea of the Gentiles. Now, it has become a sea of glass, which means its nature has been transformed through judgment into something that can now be made part of the, of the heavenly sanctuary. This is very important. What does it mean? It means that not only are Gentiles admitted into the church, they are actually admitted as priests as part of the sanctuary and that is very important is of course linked to this seven plagues that are coming through it's going to be the fruit of those seven plagues that the, the gentiles throughout the nation will be able will become a priestly nation to god on equal footing with the jews another important so we okay we talked about that now what do we see before this sea of glass? We see, in verse three, I'm sorry, in verse two, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So, there are those who are standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So they holding instrument, uh, musical instruments, and what are they doing? And they sing the song Moses. And who are they? In, in verse two. And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses. So those are not angels. We're not dealing with angelic beings here. We're dealing with with humans, who, um, men and women, who have conquered the beast and the number of its name, and they're holding harps and they're singing a song, the song of Moses. Before we get into the song of Moses... I want to point something out to you. Because of the duality of the images we're dealing with, meaning, or the composition of the image, meaning it is liturgy in heaven and liturgy on earth. It's one liturgy with its heavenly um, uh, face and its earthly face. So every liturgy on earth is tied to this heavenly liturgy. Every liturgy on earth is making present to us this heavenly liturgy. It's, it's opening the doors for us so we can join into this heavenly liturgy. Therefore, those who are holding harps of God, of God and then singing the song of Moses because they have conquered the beast and its image and a number of its name are not just those saints in heaven. They're also those saints on earth today and yesterday and tomorrow who are living the life of grace according to God's will. And they're all one voice, one Catholic, apostolic, right? holy. They are one voice, and they are all singing. So they're singing, so we sing. Singing is not optional in the church. If you are there, present in Mass, if you understand what is going on, singing is not left for the choir. Because if you do not sing, if you choose not to sing... Without you knowing that in what one sense you're you're separating yourself from this one chorus the heavenly chorus they are singing you're not now if you notice if, uh, when you go to a um, presentation or you go to listen to somebody talk um, and once this person's finished the speech people applaud if you do not applaud you are Sending a message that says, I don't agree. I am separated from the rest of these people because I don't agree with what you said. Well, when you go to Mass and you do not sing, what are you saying? Now you might say, well, that's not really what I intend. Well, fine. But to the rest of the congregation, to the rest of the heavenly congregation, you're dissonant. You're not singing. So sing. Make an effort and sing. Note, it didn't say that they sung with heavenly voices. It, the text says they are singing the song of Moses. So sing. Sing to the best of your abilities. And if you don't have a beautiful voice, well, why don't you ask God? You never know. He might give you one. So now they're singing this new song of Moses. What is this new song of Moses? Um, this is making a reference to... Well, first, before I get there, I want to point out to you something really important, and that is the playing of the harp appears in one chronicle, in the first book of Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 42. Chapter 16 is important because it is that chapter that speaks of the return of the Ark of the Covenant from Obededom to Jerusalem. David went down to Obededom and brought up the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So the singing with harp is an indication of what is going on here. It is effectively the bringing of the ark that we saw earlier on into the new Jerusalem, which is the establishment of the church on earth. So That's really important. And Now when you couple that with the fact that they're singing the song of Moses, we need to realize one thing. First of all, the song of Moses... Appears in the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 1 through 18. Moses sing a new song to the Lord. But also, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. The chapter 32 of the book of Deuteronomy is also called the Song of Moses. And in chapter 32, which I recommend you read, this song is not content, it's not content in praising God. It speaks of judgment against Israel. So the new song isn't necessarily only a song of praise. It is also a song that, of course, recapitulates the deeds of God and his glory, but speaks sometimes about the uh, coming judgment. And that's a really important factor for all of us to keep in mind. In chapter 19, verse 6 through 9 of the Book of Wisdom, Uh, That chapter and, uh, and this whole segment of wisdom is a commentary on Israel's passage through the Red Sea. And it speaks of that passage as a new creation. So combining all that, we see that the saints in heaven are singing a new song, thanking God. For the new creation he is now effecting, and at the same time, thanking God for the judgment he's going to be bringing about the world, so that this new creation may be able to take place. And in the background of all of this, there is always Genesis. Genesis is always there, always present, sort of in the background. Why? Well, think about what, what the Lord told Eve about her um, uh, the pain of childbirth. In order for a baby to be born, the mother experiences pain. And this pain is related to the initial curse that was due to original sin. The mother experiences pain for a new creation. For a new creation. Likewise, the judgment that is about to be brought into the world is such that the world would experience pain so that... The world might now move into a new creation. This pattern has, uh, that was established right after the, fir- the fall is ongoing throughout of history. Now, the actual content of the Song of Moses does not come from Deuteronomy. The first line, which we've read earlier, and that is, um, Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. That line does not come from the Song of Moses. It actually comes from Exodus chapter 28. Exodus 28, verse 59 through 60, which predicts that Israel's future judgment will be patterned after the Egyptian plagues. Here it is. Then the Lord will magnify your plagues, great and wonderful plagues, and he will bring on you all the evil pains of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cleave to you. So, this great and wonderful that is being mentioned here, and which we also see uh, making a reference to the way St. John describes those plagues, right? A great, wonderful, important, uh, is a reference to what God is going to do uh, to Israel when Israel uh, forsakes the Lord. It is also echoed in Psalm 111, verse 2 and f- through 4. Uh, psalm 111 2 through 4 which glorifies god for his great works and marvelous doings when he redeemed israel at the red sea so we see the two parts the two parts the judgment and redemption uh, all incorporated into this great and wonderful Another thing i want to mention to you i forgot to do that earlier but the seven plagues the seven plagues that uh, Fra- fra- th- phraseology, this this notion of seven plagues is mentioned only in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, this you know, mind-numbing, numbing, bone-crunching chapter of curses where God speaks uh, repeatedly sevenfold. He says it four times. So this also is bringing about this notion that Le- Leviticus 26 is about to be taking place. Now I'll say this to you. This is not just about uh, Israel only uh, this What we see in Leviticus, it's about the church throughout the ages. And every time we, as the new Israel, forsake the Lord, God will treat us in a very similar way. But at the same time, when we listen to him and we obey his commandments and love him truly, then God will shower upon us the blessings that were promised in this book in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense of the sacraments. So it's something we need to keep in mind that God will take care of us um, physically, but primarily spiritually. And I mean by this that God is not so much interested by uh, making sure we're going to live healthy and wealthy throughout, uh, throughout our lives. Uh, in fact, he often uh, uh, warns us against uh, being complacent with money. He's really interested in making us in enabling us to remain true to his word, to giving us the wisdom to bear witness to His love and to suffer on His behalf so that all of this may turn into glory in uh, in, in eternal life. Moving along, the formula of praise used, Lord the Almighty God, I ju- that I just read to you, is used repeatedly by the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's important because it was a formula used in their prophecies and oracles against Israel and the nations in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 uh, we see God being praised as the one whose works are true and all his ways just just as he's lauded again here and that's in the context of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 which is as I mentioned to you earlier that song of Moses that really brings about the in judgment against Israel Lord, King of Nations, Lord, King of Nations, if you're not following with me with your scripture, I mean, you should, as you listen to these talks, you should have scripture open to that chapter. But uh, uh, when you see this this um, expression, Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are thy ways, O King of the Ages. O King of the Ages. Then, uh, King of the Ages, O Lord, King of the Nations, confirm what was already stated in, in in chapter 11, verse 15 through 18, namely that God has begun to rule. So the reality of God's rule in heaven is affirmed before it becomes effective on earth. So when this was affirmed during the life of St. John, God, in a sense, has not yet begun to rule the nation physically. We don't see that reality yet because, as I said, the Roman Empire is has has as at its head emperors who require worship and therefore uh and and likewise the temple of jerusalem has uh, uh, the leaders of the temple are dead set against the lord and against christianity so from the perspective from an earthly perspective god has not yet begun to rule but from a heavenly perspective they know it is a reality that is just going to expand now it's going to be become manifest but it is a substantial reality that has taken place And that reality that took place back then continuously takes place throughout history. So as we look at the events of our life today, we need to remember that all that we see is this earthly reality, earthly manifestation, and we must open the eyes of faith to see the heavenly reality, which is far more important, far more substantial, and far more glorious than we can ever imagine. Therefore, when we look at the Catholic Church, it would always be a mistake to have a truncated view of the Church as the Church here only on earth. This is only a projection of the Church in heaven. And the glory of the Church on earth is not visible to the naked eye, but it's visible to the eyes of faith because it is through the eyes of faith they are connected back with the heavenly Church. And we see the true reality, the true magnificence of the Catholic Church. And then our hearts rejoice. Now the opening of verse 4 recalls Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? And Jeremiah addressed himself in that chapter to the house of Israel as he was proclaiming woes. He was basically saying, you should be fearing God, and because you do not fear God, these things are going to happen to you. Another important reference here is Psalm 86, verse 9 through 10. All nations that you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and they will glorify your name because you are great and you do marvelous things. You alone are God. This is a psalm of the oppressed servant. So as we look at all these references, some which indicate the glory of God, others which indicate His mercy, yet others who indicate His judgment, and some which are expressions of the oppressed servant, we see the totality of the reality of the church on earth expressed in the song. It is a song of praise, a song of petition. It is a song that is calling upon um, a judgment against those who are uh, stopping, who are blocking the church from expanding in the world and it is a song that is calling upon God's mercy it is effectively a song that it enters into full dialogue with God on all aspects of our lives it is a very uh, effectively very powerful song when you really look at the different parts and the the, the uh, implications behind these words um, and the combination, therefore, Jeremiah 10 and Psalm 86 addresses all of the church, the unbelievers and the believers. Everybody is addressed by the song. Everybody is covered by it. That is why it is a song that is appropriate to bring before the throne of God. And it highlights another really important part of our true worship. True worship is rooted in, in truth. It is rooted in the Word of God. So as we increase and deepen our knowledge of the Word of God, our worship our worship, becomes more relevant that is not to say that god will not listen to us when we pray he will always listen to us but it's just that when we deepen our understanding of scripture our understanding how god deals us throughout the world, throughout history and when our language and our life become biblical our presentation is more pleasing to the lord we give him greater glory that's what it means now the last part of verse 4 echoes psalm 98 verse 2 the Lord has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now, interestingly, verse 2 follows on the heel of a reference to Exodus fifteen, one and 6. O sing to the Lord a new song. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory. The psalm encourages the singers of the new song to play harps. So, in the psalm, we see an encouragement for, for these singers to play harps. That's why the song is, is the psalm is relevant here. And it again... Uh, highlights the need for us to be true worshipers to really understand how god works we can't be really true worshipers if we do not know god and know how he is going to act with us as we live our life of faith in a church and one more time i would say to you that the nations adoring god All the nations adoring God, which have have been already indicated by the sea of glass mingled with fire, that is part of the throne of God, makes sense only within the context of the Catholic Church, because it is only through the context of the through the Catholic Church that this universality of the adoring nations uh, is really becomes a true reality, true historic reality, where all nations worship with one voice and believe one set of beliefs. That's why the Church is essential. Uh, for uh, us and for the world now let's move through you know verses five through eight as i said earlier seven is the number of the covenant and of completeness Uh, again verses five through eight is when the the temple of the tent of witness in heaven is open and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues and are robed in pure bright linen and the breast girded with golden girdles and then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God. And the temple was filled with smoke. So the, the two parts, the two um, movements in this chapter is that, number one, we give glory and praise. Number one, God shows us what he's about to do. The seven angels come out with holding those bowls or, or uh, not, not holding the bowls yet, but with the seven plagues. As a result of this, we praise and give glory to God, all of us. By singing a song of praise. And in that song, there's all these elements I talked to you about earlier. As a result of our praise, God now <clears throat> is filling those bowls with his wrath, which is about to be poured on the world. So, we sang the song thanking God for what he's about to do, and God goes ahead and do it. We've given him expression of our faith, our, 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 our adoration. We've glorified him, and as a result of this, God then acts. God does not need any of this he doesn't need our faith or we doesn't need us to glorify him he's not doing this for himself he's doing this for us for his church for the building of the church we need to understand that and let's see now how he responds then um, <clears throat> the liturgical context of course here is explicit uh, the the they are c- coming out of the temple and, uh, uh, oh yeah, by the way, one thing I wanted to tell you was that uh, you notice uh, th- this, this pattern that I just mentioned to you where we give effectively thanks first and then the reality is, is made present is, of course, uh, um, you know, present very, very strongly in the, uh, in the Eucharist, in the Euchar- Eucharistic liturgy. Why? Because Christ gives thanks. I mean, the priest gives thanks to God the priest praise God, and then through the anamnesis, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the words of consecration, the reality is brought to us. But first, the priest gives praise and glory to God, and then he goes ahead and do what he had, and, and then he says the words of consecration, and the reality happens. So again, Mass is structured this way. The reality is in heaven; it has already happened. Christ has conquered. Christ has risen. Christ is Lord. The, 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 the sacrifice has happened once and for all, for all ages. This is substantial reality. The, what we do in Mass on Earth is to make that reality, that truth, available to us. What is true of the Eucharist is true of the way the, the, the Lord deals with the world throughout history. The reality of salvation has already happened. We don't have to question it. The Church is established it will never be destroyed until the end, the end of the world. We don't have to question it. Now, our job is to roll up our sleeves, understand scripture, live it rightly, and then make sure that we give God the worship and present our petitions before his eternal throne, and then he turns around and makes those petitions, he makes his response to these petitions a reality on earth. Now, notice here that the temple has been reduced to the tabernacle of testimony, which is the sanctuary. In other words, if you really think about the, the Temple of Jerusalem, uh, as we've discussed, as we've uh, uh, talked about it earlier, the, the whole temple of Jerusalem had you know, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of men, the court of priests, and then the holy and the Holy of Holies. Well, all of that has been reduced down to the, effectively, the holy and the Holy of Holies. Right? And they're coming out of the tabernacle of, uh, they're coming out of the, the tent of testimony, which is really the holy with the Holy of Holies inside of it. The testimony of what? What is this testimony? Well, it's according to Scripture, the testimony is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, bear the testimony of what? Of God's covenant with us. Here are my law that I want you to live by and the oath we took to live by this law. That, so that, therefore, the Ten Commandments present in the Ark are a testimony to this covenant between God and us, to His promise and our oath. And therefore, this is a covenantal action that God is taking as these uh, um, angels are coming out of the, out of the, um, uh, the sanctuary. And, and one, one, one more thing though, about the, the, the tabernacle. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, but above the ark there was the mercy seat. Hence, it isn't just justice, it's also mercy. And they're coming out from the presence of God in the temple with his justice and his mercy. We need to remember that. Right? So it's not just about God effecting justice, but it's also God effecting mercy through this action. Um, the sanctuary was closed uh, earlier on. We, we saw the angels, uh, that the sanctuary was open the first time when we saw the Ark of the Covenant, and now we see this, the, the angels coming out of the sanctuary for the second time. And in certain uh, Eastern liturgies, this mode is followed when the sanctuary is made visible and then hidden at specific times using a triptych, which is a 3 uh, side panel that uh, in, in, um, in certain Eastern liturgies is... Put in front of the tabernacle and is removed at specific times to uh, better model what is going on in heaven. And that only speaks to the richness of the different uh, churches that uh, are all part of the Catholic Church and their liturgies and the way they uh, reflect this um, heavenly liturgy in heaven, the heavenly liturgy. Since the angels have the plagues before they are handed the cups, it may make more sense to think about having as an authority rather than physical possession of an object. As in 1418, where an angel came out from the altar having authority over the fire. He didn't have the fire, but he had the authority over the fire. So perhaps that's a better way to understand what it means for them to have the plagues. They have, they're coming out with the authority to use those plagues. And here and elsewhere, the bowls of cups are, also can be called chalices, um, uh, and as I mentioned earlier the only other place in scripture where the same phrase occurs uh, in Greek or Hebrew is Leviticus 26 21. I will also bring on, your, on, your, on you Israel seven plagues according to your sins and Leviticus repeats this Leviticus 26 repeat this four times the description of these angels is almost identical to that of the son of man in chapter 1 verse 13 which may imply that they are identified with him and act as his representatives in carrying out his judgment. And that should not surprise us as Catholics because really these angels are acting in a sense as persona Christi. They are dressed as a high priest would be dressed. They are effectively carrying on priestly ministry within, within the context of the liturgy. And um, we need to keep in mind that the bowls of wrath are related to the praise of the saints. In chapter 5, verse 8 and 6, verse 9 through 11, and, and also 8, 3 through 5. So chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, and chapter 8, verse 3 through 5. Recall that earlier the golden bowls were full of incense, which are the praise of the saints. Chapter 5, verse 8, and 6, verse 9. So these prayers, these bowls of incense, now come, come back to us filled with, the wrath, filled with the wrath of God. That is God's answer to their prayer which is what I've explained earlier at the beginning of this lecture. Verse 8 underscores that the bowl afflictions do not come ultimately from the seven angels or from the four living beings, but only from God. Why do we say that? Because the temple is filled with God's presence, described as filled with the smoke from God's glory and from His power. Now, this has happened in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the second chapter, the second book of Chronicles, verse uh, chapter five, verse thirteen, um, and in Isaiah chapter six, verse one and four, the temple is filled with God's presence can signify a dedication, as when God came on a, temp- on a tent that Moses has created. According to God's uh, directions. A new creation. Um, again, when um, the, uh, at the beginning of uh, creation, the Holy Spirit was hovering over. The Spirit of God was hovering over the, the, uh, the, the deep. And also when the Holy Spirit came upon Our Lady. A new creation. And also an act of judgment. As seen in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2 and 4 where an angelic being, clothed in linen, stands close to the four um, cherubim in the heavenly temple, and the temple was filled with a cloud, and the cord was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So what does that mean? It really means that God's presence is so awesome in expressing wrath, that not even heavenly beings can stand in His midst. The practical implication of this is that God Himself is executing judgment, and now that judgment is about to begin, no one will stay his hand. If you recall from Fatima, Our Lady told the, the children that the, the arm of her son is about to come down on the world and she will not be able to hold his hand much longer. And therefore, we need to understand that there is a time of intercession that is open to us. But at one point, when God is about to execute judgment, that ends. God's awesome Holiness fills the temple and no one is able to enter the temple until that judgment has been completed. And when it is complete then we see the fruits of that judgment and we see how it benefits the church and it benefits the saints and it benefits the believers and it helps others, non-believers, to see the truth and hopefully to convert. Therefore, as Catholics we must gird our mind not to see in the judgment of God or in the curses he brings about, a um, the act of a wrathful, vengeful God. Rather, we must see it in a continuum of the history of the church. It is we must also see it as being the um, the uh, we must see in, in that God has endowed the liturgy with His mercy and with His wrath. The liturgy is now the embodiment of His covenant, right? Um, it is it is how this covenant is made uh, manifest to us. It is how the covenant is constantly um, used and employed to transform the world, to save the world, to convert the world, and to give glory to the Church. And that is why we as Catholics need to truly focus every all our attention on the Mass. Every prayer we say, every personal prayer we say, every uh, personal time we spend with the Lord, every rosary we say, every um, every uh, devotion we do, every prayer that a Protestant, a Buddhist, a Muslim say, in, in, in truth, addressing themselves with a contrite heart to God, all of those prayers would avail to nothing if it wasn't for the liturgy. Because it is through the liturgy that God is making His love and His mercy and His wrath known to the world. It is the liturgy that bridges heaven and earth. It is the liturgy that should always be the focus of our prayers, the focus of our attention, and the real and true sign of growth. Uh, in our spiritual life our growth if you want to know if you're making progress in your spiritual life look to the liturgy there you will see yourself as you truly are as you enter into this conversation with God during mass the liturgy is the greatest treasure we have on earth it is the, uh, the, the the power that really torques the world And as Catholics, we must understand that we hold in our hands the key to the betterment of the world. Because when we start praying, when we pray with a contrite heart, when we celebrate the liturgy in truth and in spirit, when we live it as Christ wants us to live it, then the world is aligned. We feed the world. That's how it works. This is the the reality of our faith. This is the treasure of the church. This is what is being revealed to us through the book of Revelation. And this is what we are called to live every day of our lives. to Thank God for what he has given us and to praise him and to look forward to this heavenly liturgy where we are all going to be joined with the saints and the angels and give him praise forever and live with him and love him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.